This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Noise is unwanted distraction. That which interferes with our true perception and intention, you know, that which pushes us or pulls us away from what we really want. And silence, you know, as you mentioned it, as one level is the absence of noise, but this space where no one's making claims on our consciousness, where no one, nothing is interfering with our clear perception and intention. Silence is not silent at all. It's teeming with life and joy and ecstasy but it's quiet of thoughts of the self. So it's quiet of thoughts of the self. It's quiet of foolishness. That was Justin Zorn and Lee Mars on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, co-author of Act Daily Journal and an upcoming book on Act for Burnout. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the book Work, Parent, Thrive. And from coastal New England, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty, The Big Book of Act Metaphors, and the upcoming Imposter No More. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We're proud to be sponsored by Praxis, the premier provider of continuing education training for mental health professionals. Right now, Praxis is offering both virtual and in-person trainings. And for the virtual trainings, they have both live and on-demand courses. Praxis is our go-to for evidence-based CE trainings, and they're especially known for their ACT trainings. Some of the best expert peer-reviewed ACT trainers offer courses with Praxis. Check out their current offerings at praxiscet.com, or you can link to them through our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and you can get a discount on live training events if you use the code OFFTHECLOCK. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries, but when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. 
Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's zocdoccom slash P-O-T-C, ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C. I'm here with Yael to introduce today's episode where I interview Justin Zorn and Lee Mars about their book, Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. And I thought this was just a really interesting take on silence. And I'm wondering, Yael, what your reaction to the episode was. Well, I had an interesting experience listening to the episode, Jill, because once in a while, something funny happens as we're editing our episodes in preparation for our intros for one another, and somehow you silenced your track. So as I was (laughs) listening to it, I could hear Lee and Justin speaking and not you. So there was these silences when you would be reflecting on what they had said and then asking your next question. And I could have reached out to you and said, hey, Jill, can you fix the episode so that I can hear you? But I thought to myself, oh, this is such a great opportunity to (laughs) with silence and what it's like to know that I'm missing chunks of this conversation. And on the one hand, it was like, oh, what is she saying? And am I going to know the context? But actually, it was pretty easy to figure out. And it was a really kind of fun experience. And I think an opportunity and, and one that sort of opens this question of like, how can we each build in more opportunities to instead of filling the silence when there is, taking it as an opportunity to sit with it and see what comes up. It it was kind of fun. Oh my God. I love that you did that so much. And it's so true to you being like such a little scientist at heart. You're like, oh, I'm going to use this (laughs) as an opportunity to experiment. (laughs) And, And I think, you know, and this is partly one of the things we talk about in the episode is how much we all kind of like fear and dread and dislike silence. And, you know, there's even the phrase awkward silence and that we work so hard to avoid those things. But when we get curious and allow ourselves to sit in them, you have a really different experience. And it's often not the aversive experience that you predict it's going to be. And it sounds like that was your experience listening or not listening to me when you were listening to the interview. Yeah. Well, and silence is such an interesting thing as therapists too, because we we use silence as a therapeutic tool and learn to sit with it. And what's interesting about that is I learned how to be a therapist in silence before I learned how to be a partner in silence. And my partner is kind of a quiet guy and much more comfortable with silence interpersonally than I am. And so I I feel like I've thought a lot about silence as as something that can make me uncomfortable, but also is something that can be quite productive and connecting if you allow yourself to sit with the discomfort long enough. Yeah. And that's the key, right? Is like the willingness to sit in that. And, you know, it actually reminded me, I was listening to the interview that you did on Brad Stolberg's podcast. So Brad has been a guest on our podcast and then Yael was on his podcast, The Growth Equation. And you're talking about how you have a deliberate rest time for your kids, for your family, and that often what comes up is they complain that they're bored, of course, as kids always do. 
And that you look at, like you ask them questions about like, what did you notice? What sort of thoughts came up as you were sitting in this space? And that idea of like boredom sort of reminded me of this idea of silence. Like we hate to be bored and we work very hard to get away from boredom. But like when we just kind of slow down and allow ourselves to sit in spaces with less stimulation and get curious, something interesting or beneficial may actually come out of that. Yeah. And I mean, the research on boredom is that what happens when we're bored is our minds tend to wander over to more personally interesting, meaningful, and stimulating content when we're not being stimulated from the outside. And so it is a place, emotionally speaking, where real creativity can come or where really powerful self-reflections can come or where you know other kinds of realizations can come. And yet I think the impulse, the reflex almost is that when we're quiet, when we're a bit understimulated is to just like automatically reach for something that will entertain us, distract us. And so I think the trick for building more silence in is to have practices that sort of force a a brief pause before you reach for something to distract or stimulate you. And that because that is the automatic action that we all take. And so my kids' rest time is one example. I offered another few examples in the conversation that I have with Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus on their podcast, but this is something that I do. So like when I'm in line at the grocery store that, right, the temptation is to reach for your phone and Mm -hmm. I try really hard to keep it in my pocket and instead to just kind of sit quietly. I think it's also nice when you come home from work before you pick up your kids to have a brief time in the car or before you step into the house where you just kind of breathe a few breaths quietly. So I think practices like those help you build that muscle of sitting with silence and kind of less stimulation. And again, getting curious, like what what's going to come out of that? Yeah. And close to the end of the episode, Justin and Lee give some examples and they're right in line with what you're saying. You know, if, if your podcast shuts off, like my voice shut off for you, instead of rushing to get to the, you know, turn it back on or get to the next one, like just sit with that lack of stimulation. And what I like about your examples and their examples are, you know, these are really easy things that we can build into our day, almost like little micro sessions of silence or boredom and that you don't have to go to a monastery and, you know, go to a two day silent retreat. So it felt like it was a really kind of like um, realistic and accessible way to to talk about building more silence. I love that. Can, can I actually say one more thing yeah. that I love about it? So I'm like a fairly socially anxious person, as I'm often admitting on this podcast. And one of the things that I like is being around people who are comfortable with silence because it takes the pressure off of me to come up with a good response. And so I just want to say that, you know, sometimes we're afraid of silence and sometimes we're afraid of what other people might perceive if we're silent. So I think almost like talking about it more, bringing it out into the open and, you know, maybe even sharing those kinds of experiences and commitments to silence with other people that you care about. Not like in a, let's, you know, have five years of silence, although that's an interesting experiment too, as as they talk about in the podcast. But, you know, have times that with your partner or your kids, you just agree to be silent and and be silent together, which is kind of beautiful. And and for the socially anxious among us, sort of a, a reprieve. I love that. I think there's so much wisdom in that. And truly, if I could get my son to be silent for 30 (laughs) to 60 seconds, it would be like an absolute dream come true. (laughs) So on that note, we hope you enjoy this episode with Justin Zorn and Lee Mars. 
Hey, everybody, it's Jill here, and I'm excited to bring to you this episode today about a book called Golden, The Power of Silence and a World of Noise. The book was written by Justin Zorn and Lee Mars. Justin Talbot Zorn has served as both a strategist and a meditation teacher in the U.S. Congress, a Harvard and Oxford trained specialist in the economics and psychology of human thriving. He has written for the Washington Post, the Atlantic, Harvard Business Review, Foreign Policy, and other publications. Justin is the co-author of Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. He is co-founder of Astrea Strategies, a consultancy that bridges contemplation and action, helping leaders and teams envision and communicate solutions to complex challenges. Justin lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico with his wife and three children. Lee Mars is a collaboration and leadership coach for major universities, corporations, and federal agencies, as well as a longtime student of pioneering researchers and practitioners of the ritualized use of psychedelic medicines in the West. She has led training programs to promote an experimental mindset among teams at NASA and a decade-long cross-sector collaboration to reduce toxic chemicals and products in partnership with Green Science Policy Institute, Harvard University, IKEA, Google, and Kaiser Permanente. She is also a co-founder of Astrea Strategies. Lee lives in Berkeley, California with her husband and daughter. Justin Lee, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you on Psychologists Off the Clock. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Jill. Good to be with you. You got it. So let's jump right in. This is a really fascinating. I First of all, I love the title and the cover of the book. It's really appealing and, I don't know, sort of compelling, this whole idea of like silence is golden. And I'm curious just to start, we're going to talk about what silence is in a moment, but given you know what you guys do, do with leadership. And, you know, I imagine your jobs involve a lot of talking. So what is it that led you to want to write, you know, a whole entire book about silence? Totally. We, uh, we were actually just joking about this chill yesterday that we're both big talkers. We both really like to talk and we're like, this is kind of funny. We wrote a book about silence. Huh? It's a little ironic. <laughs> a little ironic. But for us, it came from a feeling of despondence, feeling like, what are we going to do about this crazy world? How are we possibly going to bring a little bit more sanity to our own lives and the lives of people around us and some of the systems that we live within in healthcare and in education and politics and policy, the environment. And we felt this intuition that the prerequisite to bringing any positive change right now is getting beyond the noise. Getting beyond the noise and tuning in to silence, finding the most pristine attention that we can find and listening, tuning into it, immersing ourselves into it, that the answers might not come through more thinking or talking. Yeah. Well, I have a question I want to ask you later after we get into silence a little bit more, because, you know, what I do for a living is therapy, Mm -hmm. sometimes called talk therapy. So... I'll, that's a little teaser. I'm interested to to talk to you about the role of silence in therapy. But before we get there, let's talk about what you mean by silence, because you say silence isn't just an absence, but a presence. So can you say a little bit more about what you mean by this? Yeah, absolutely. We'll start by saying when we were in that state that Justin was describing, we had this intuition 
about an article which we wrote for Harvard Business Reviewer looking at silence as a strategic space of, you know, to help us kind of sort through those difficult places. We were working on a lot of complex issues. You know, how might silence support us in strategic thinking and how might it be a benefit to us to maybe do something like relax the mental reflexes of always having to think of what to say in response to everything. So we were trying out these ideas of silence really from an auditory perspective. And that article that was published in Harvard Business Review, to our surprise, got a lot of responses and went viral and really caused us to step back and think more deeply about this question of silence, exactly what you're pointing us towards. So we started thinking of it as, you know, initially as the absence of noise. But as we then went out into the world and started asking these fascinating people, neuroscientists and politicians and a man incarcerated on death row and artists and whirling dervishes and activists and therapists and, you know, psychologists and neuroscientists, I think I already said, but we spoke to many. This We asked them this question, what's the deepest silence you've ever known? And they're the ones who really pointed us to this deeper understanding of silence as a presence unto itself, because their answers were not always auditorily quiet. They included these moments of peak moment, you know, life experiences, births, deaths, moments of awe, moments running the perfect line through roaring rapids or the 4 a.m. mark at an all-night dance party so <laughs> and flow yeah. states and all kinds of different mental states. So that really set us on this journey of exploring the many dimensions um, of silence and the many definitions and meanings of it in people's lives. I really loved that you took that track of getting outside of your own, you know, experience or even research and asking all of these different types of people with different roles. And I think that was one of my favorite parts of the book was just reading their vastly different, but really wise conceptualizations. And I liked so many of them, but one that really resonated with me, we had Judson Brewer on our podcast and he talked about silence as equanimity and an absence of push or pull. And it was one of the simpler conceptualizations, but it really spoke to me. And I think especially as a psychologist and as someone who specializes in anxiety disorders, you know, that, that really spoke to me. And I'm curious if, what were your favorites? You know, were there any that kind of gave you goosebumps when you first heard or read them? Yeah, there's so many, you know, Judson Moore. When when we spoke with Judson Brewer, yeah, he described the equanimity, this silence is the absence of the push or pull. And it he kind of got to the essence of, you know, back to your question before, the meaning of silence, you know, and the meaning of noise. Noise is unwanted distraction, that which interferes with our true perception and intention, you know, that which pushes us or pulls us away from what we really want. And silence you know, as you mentioned it, as one level is the absence of noise, but this space where no one's making claims on our consciousness, where no one, nothing is interfering with our clear perception and intention. So when we talked with Judson Brewer, he was talking about how through his fMRI studies of long-term meditators, he said the common denominator to the experience of noise in the consciousness was a feeling of contraction 
And the common denominator to what people would report as an experience of silence in the mind was a feeling of expansion, expansiveness. So Gordon Hempton, who is one of the world's great acoustic ecologists, who studies the endangered soundscapes of the world and records them before they disappeared, before they disappear, he says that silence is time undisturbed. It's the think tank of the soul. So it's the same idea of this feeling of like expansiveness, you know, which from the standpoint of thinking about therapy, it's like, you know, when people are in a difficult state psychologically or people in a difficult state that they're trying to get out of or in a moment of transition when there's just too many thoughts competing for the mic within the consciousness, you know, worries, anxieties, it's that feeling of contraction what we found, what I found at least in my own life in difficult times and the feelings when I feel inspiration and equilibrium and like I can be present with the people I love, it's this, it's this feeling of expansion. And that's one way we think of the silence that we talk about. Mm-hmm. Lee, are there any other uh, any oh. uh, these definitions you want to point to? Yeah, so many. I'll just say that I do remember coming in contact with Judson Brewer and his definition that it contraction and expansion, that was a big opening for us. And it is so simple, but that could keep you busy for your lifetime, tracking (laughs) the contraction and the expansion. So it was a beautiful moment. And they all sort of, there was a resonance that shows up in these definitions for us, which is why they're all in there. What comes to my mind right now is Pierre Shabda Khan. He's a Sufi teacher Uh, here in Northern California. And he says, silence is not silent at all. It's teeming with life and joy and ecstasy, but it's quiet of thoughts of the self. So it's quiet of thoughts of the self. It's quiet of foolishness. So that he, you know, calling in all this vibrance and liveness that's in silence, which really feels true for me. And then yet, what is it that's quiet? these thoughts of the sun, you know, it sounds like the way he described that is almost like a dissolution of ego, which reminds me of, you know, the use of psychedelics, which I know is something that you're interested in too. Absolutely. In fact, you know, asking these different amazing people, this question about the deepest silence and having these different reflections show up, we found it led us all, um, towards looking into different research and neuroscience what where is the what's what are we understanding about this internal state of quiet this and finding those common threads we found an area an emerging area of science looking at self-transcendent experiences which does create this almost umbrella term for things that we experience and sometimes in meditation and in flow states which we can get into and in mystical experiences and in some cases, in experiences brought about by using plant medicines or entheogens or psychedelic medicines as well, this experience of quiet where the the self, the small egoic self kind of um, falls away and there's maybe no space for that self-referential thought, but there's a greater sense, a bigger sense of self, something more integrated and connected to the larger world around us, people, mm-hmm. nature, God, whatever, fill in the blank, you know, that is incredibly quietening and incredibly enjoyable and shared in these seemingly different mental states. 
we thought so that was fascinating. It is it, it? Yeah, it, absolutely. I agree. And um, I'm wondering, do you think of silence? How is it the same or different from flow? From mindfulness? Is it is it a larger umbrella term? Is it part of these things? Are they related but different? How do they overlap? And and how are they separate? You know, we think of this book as a non-meditator's guide to getting beyond the noise. And we have so much respect for mindfulness. You know, I taught mindfulness on Capitol Hill when I worked there, as you mentioned, and Lee has integrated it into a lot of her work. But we've had 40 years of mindfulness and the world is more distracted than ever. So we wanted to look beyond the rules and tools of mindfulness, you know, and offer a simple field guide to finding accessible ways to navigate these different kinds of noise. Because in the book, we look at the auditory noise, but also the informational noise and the internal noise, the noise in our ears, but also the noise in our screens and the noise in our heads. So we wanted to offer people an invitation to let go of questions and expectations that they often have around mindfulness, like, am I doing it right? Am I meditating enough? We wanted to give people license to let go of all those feelings of doubt around mindfulness and to simply tune into something that's so inherent to being human, the experience of silence, which is something that we all know in our own way for ourselves. You know, and in this way that we all know silence for ourselves. It's often experienced as a state of flow. We asked a, a whole range of neuroscientists and academic psychologists, what is silence in the mind? And they all, you know, were pretty unanimous in saying, like, a mind that is totally silent is a mind that's dead. That's like not what you actually want. But there is an experience of silence in the mind that is in a mind that is alive, in a universe that's alive and buzzing and singing and dancing. And this silence is, you know, as we were mentioning, this, this absence of any interference in our perception and intention. It's a state of pristine awareness, pristine attention. You know, again, where there's nothing making claims on our consciousness. And like in the highest degree of this kind of silence we're talking about, you know, we experience a kind of wholeness to it. You know, it's like if the sound and stimulus of speech and thought are signaling what needs to change, what action needs to be taken, what needs to be done, then the pristine awareness of a moment of, of deep silence, of pristine awareness in our consciousness, it signals the opposite, where nothing needs to be done, these states of peace in our lives. And sometimes, as Lee mentioned before, these can be active. These could be on the basketball court. These could be, you know, kayaking down a river. These could even in some cases be in conversation with a loved one. But it's these places where there's no interference. Yeah. When you pose the question in your book, and I know you do this in workshops, but you ask, what is the deepest silence you've ever known? And I had to get through the book before I could even answer the question because it, my first response to the question was, I don't think I've ever known a deep silence. I'm not, because I don't think I really understood exactly what was meant by the question initially. And then reading the book, I had a better understanding of it. And I was surprised that the answers that kind of rose for me were in these very simple moments. So for example, the first thing that came to me was when I used to walk my dog on the beach when I lived in California. And, you know, he's a... <laughs> French bulldog. So he is not silent, right? I mean, he's, 
<laughs> huffing and puffing and snorting and grunting and making all sorts of noise. And of course, the ocean and the seagulls and the wind. And But there was just this, like you said, like this expansive, present awareness where it was like time and distraction and everything was gone, just absent. And, and there was no effort involved. Like I didn't have to try to be present and aware. It just sort of, it was like a state of being almost. So does that sound right? Like, does that sound like what you're talking about when you talk about knowing a deep (laughs) moment of silence? Absolutely. And I love, we haven't had a French bulldog in the mix yet. So thanks for introducing that in the answers that, yeah, and the new answers. The We spoke with a professor of biobehavioral health and medicine, Dr. Joshua Smythe, who was the one when we were asking him really haranguing him for this internal silence. What's internal silence? He does large scale um, studies, um, mindfulness and all kinds of stress reducing practices. And he's the one who in exasperation said to us, quiet is what people think quiet is. Hmm. Quiet is what people think quiet is. And we would probably add, it's really what quiet is what we feel quiet to be. And as Justin said, we all know we believe that there's this innate wisdom to what quiet is and it may look pretty weird like it was he mentioned a a man in his study who found his quiet carving large chunks of wood doing chainsaw carving and making artwork and sculptures with that that's when he was this man was in complete flow right complete focused concentration no no space for self-referential thought and all other kinds of things. So there's like a merging of action and awareness. This is building on the work of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. So again, this pointed us towards flow. Um, you know, I also had a hard time answering that question. It's like the the answer that came to me when I when we asked this question it just didn't seem quite right. It was kind of complicated. It was a mess. I mentioned in there that I was postpartum and having a postpartum psychotic episode and was asked by my therapist, have I lost my witness? And that's that moment where all of a sudden there was clarity. Two types of quiet showed up. The quiet in me that actually had been tracking all the different voices and all those different unhelpful voices that were coming in, obsessive thoughts and paranoid thoughts and anxious thoughts, all that parted. So there was a quiet in me, but there was also this vast silence that was holding me, this expansiveness that was holding me and just told me everything was going to be okay. It took months and months and months of sort of excavating to get at that what that is. So for some people, they get an answer right off the bat. And for those of us who may have an unusual seeming answer, um, it can take a little more time. But what we hope happens for the readers as they engage this this book is that they find their way to that answer and that they honor it as weird as it may be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you provide a lot of different, you know, you provide all the different kinds of like conceptualizations or definitions that all the different, you know, scholars and poets and everyone had. And then you also provide a lot of different examples. So I think it does certainly lead, lead down that path of understanding it for 
the individual reader. And of course, we will talk about how to find moment of silent, moments of silence. But before that, let's talk a little bit about why silence is important. So you present a lot of research in here about both the costs of noise. And, and Justin, you had mentioned there's the auditory stimuli and informational noise, you know, all this unrelenting data that is assaulting us on a daily basis, and then internal noise of thoughts and, and feelings. So maybe we can talk a little bit about the cost of noise as well as the benefits of silence. And, you know, in reading the research in the book, I was surprised and not surprised about one of the findings where you talked about a research study where people could either opt to sit in silence for 15 minutes or get an electric shock. And 67% of men would prefer to have a shock than to sit in silence. And it was only 25% of women. So that gender difference, just the fact that anyone would want a shock rather than silence is really interesting and important and telling, but also that gender difference is really something as well. So can you tell us a little bit about the, these benefits and costs of silence and noise? Sure. You know, and it really comes back to what we were talking about before of, of noise in the consciousness as this state of contraction, which in a way is almost like the dopamine rush, the state of, of busyness, of really going for it in our lives, of having that contracted intensity in the body and in the mind. And the expansiveness isn't always how we think of success or progress or what we're going for in this culture. You know, so thus you have like that University of Virginia study, people preferring a painful electric shock, the intensity of something rather than needing to sit in the silence and face it. But to, to look at this question of why silence matters for us, you know, I think it's important to first look at the fact that noise is so radically on the rise in our society. Like it's not just a figment of our imagination. I mean, researchers at, through the National Park Service estimate that noise pollution increases two to threefold every 30 years. And in Europe, 450 million people, about 65% of the population, live with noise levels that the World Health Organization deemed to be hazardous to health. And this is auditory noise. And the research shows that this is linked to cardiovascular disease. It's linked to stroke. It's linked to depression and anxiety, you know, as well as sleep problems. But there's also the informational noise. In 2010, Eric Schmidt, when he was CEO of Google, made an estimate that every two days, we now create as much information as we did from the dawn of civilization up until 2003. That's every two days. And researchers like Mihai Chichesmihai have found that the upward bound of what we can actually compute in terms of information as a human being isn't increasing. It's just we're dealing with this fire hose of more and more information. So what's really of interest to us is how, you know, to your question of the importance of getting beyond the noise for our health, for our clarity, this auditory noise and this, and this informational noise, there's a lot of evidence that that gives rise to more internal noise too. Ethan Cross, who you may know, the psychologist at the University of Michigan, estimates that we now have to listen to something like 320 State of the Union addresses worth of compressed speech in our head every single day, the average person. Wow. And this is just this is natural in a world 
of so much sound and stimulus and information. So one thing we've really aspired to do in this book is to is to point out that we often mistake the feeling of stress for aliveness. We often mistake that contracted state of noisiness in the consciousness that Judge and Brewer spoke about as fulfillment. And there's another level of fulfillment that all of these extraordinary people who Lee mentioned that we've interviewed in the course of this book, all the stories we weave through this book, all of them explain to us how there's this level of fulfillment that is a state of expansiveness. That's a level of tuning into the silence. And we explore in the book the science that shows that this state of expansiveness in quiet, in time of immersive, pristine attention, time in nature, this is actually edifying for the mind is what the research is showing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah. You talk about how there's a real tendency to to fear silence. And I will say, like, I really relate to this. I think many people relate to this in this culture that, you know, for me, the way, not proudly, especially as a psychologist, but the way that I kind of escape my own stress and anxiety is to be in this, like, go, 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 do, do, do. You know, as long as I'm busy, then I, I'm not worrying and anxious because I'm distracted and doing all of all of these things. And it works in the moment in the short term, but of course in the long term, it's creating, you know, it's a feedback loop, right? It's costing more and more, ca- causing more and more of these issues related to, to noise. Um, and the other thing I thought about is with that study with the electric shock, there's a very similar study that it's the same finding, but instead of being related to silence, it's related to um, uncertainty. So basically, if people may or may not get an electric shock, they were much more distressed than if they knew for sure they were going to get an electric shock, right? So it was like less painful to get a shock than it was to sit not knowing if you were going to get a shock. And so I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about like, is that difficulty with uncertainty or you know, lack of control is a, is a problem for folks when they get anxious and fearful? Is, do we think that is somehow related to the fear of silence? Like, why are we so uncomfortable in these mm-hmm. moments? I mean, people talk about awkward silences and you can see how we like fill space instead of just sitting in that moment. Yeah. We felt that was so important to address that we have a chapter on why silence is scary. Um, Roshi Joan Halifax says, when we stop our habitual mental and physical activity and sit quietly, difficulties often become more visible. We can become even more sensitive to suffering and feel at risk for breakdown. What is probably breaking down is our ego, our identity. Yeah, there she comes again. (laughs) Yeah. What is probably breaking down is our ego, our identity as a small, separate self, And the healthy part of us should welcome this. So we do look in the book at that place of the unknown, as well as the place where something may become known. 
something we suspect is a problem. One of those definitions that we love about silence is Padre Gotuma, who says he's a poet and theologian, who says um, silence is where we can ask ourselves the really strange questions. <laughs> and sometimes those questions are fun and quirky and interesting, and sometimes they're really hard. Like, what if I'm not in the right marriage or the right job or on my path? Or if I'm, you know, covering up with addictions and habits that are causing harm. So we really wanted to meet this because we know this from the inside out. We know this place. <laughs> we really wanted to meet this um, head on with compassion and to uncover some of those places all the way down to that awkward silence that my daughter who's 16, there's like nothing more horrifying than an awkward silence in yep. her world. So it really has been with us this, this um, fear of silence. Uh, Nishi spoke to the horror of the vacuum, that, that fear of emptiness of the unknown and what might become known, I would add. Yeah. yeah. I went to a, a writing retreat. It was actually March of 2020, right before the world blew up. And I was out in, I was living in California in Massachusetts at the time um, and went to this writing retreat. And unbeknownst to me, the, the first morning that we were there, it was a silent breakfast. And as soon as the, and I was with my best friend. And as soon as they announced it, I had almost this like <gasps> panic kind of response like, oh God, how are we going to do that? That's going to be so awkward and so uncomfortable. And it was at first, but much more quickly than I would have predicted. And Julie, my best friend that I was with, she and I talked about this after, you know, we both really, as people who have never been in, you know, we are not like retreat going type people. So we had never had an experience like this before. And we were surprised at how quickly we settled in and how pleasant it became. And it shifted our experience of the writing a little bit later in the day. You know, we were just starting our day from this much more grounded, kind of peaceful, like almost introspective place. It was really powerful. And it, it made me think maybe I should do an actual silent retreat for a couple of days. And if I have not, but I, you know, I have friends who have done it and just, you know, they, they talk about how incredibly powerful those experiences are. I love that, Jill. I love how you described how, you know, it didn't take that long to get over the discomfort, you know, and going into it, it's like, oh my God, what's that going to be like? But then once you sit with it for a little while, it's like, all right, what's on the other side of that awkwardness? What's on the other side of that discomfort? And often it's more feeling of connection. Often it's more feeling of clarity. We look in the book at how Pythagoras, this great mystic teacher who was also this phenomenal mathematician and and, and uh, explorer of the cosmos, basically, in astronomy 2,500 years ago, he required his inner circle of students who wanted to be philosophers in ancient Greece. He required that inner circle of students to spend five years in silence, five years not talking if they wanted to study with him. So we look in the book as like, what does five years in silence do to the architecture of the mind? 
Sometimes it's like, what does five minutes in silence do to the architecture of the mind? You know, and that's probably a little more relevant for most of our lives these days. But like looking at this question of like, what is on the other side? No, it's more of the work of knowing ourselves. It's more of the work of awareness. What is really going on in a given situation? What's really happening in the dynamic of a couple or a mother and child or a therapist and, and a client? You know, what, what's really at play? What are the energies really there? And the silence is often necessary to clarify what's really going on. And once there's an awareness of what's going on, we can find a little bit more order and equilibrium in our lives. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say there's often a sense, a greater sense of connection. Because even in this room filled with hundreds of people eating breakfast in silence, not talking to each other, not getting to know one another, that was definitely something I felt. I felt more deeply connected to this room of strangers. And I wasn't really sure why, other than we were all having this similar experience that was probably a little bit different mm-hmm. for all of us, you know, sort of like a shared painful experience almost. But but the way you're describing it, there's there's more depth. Mm-hmm. It's there. And I certainly think in therapy, you know, this is something 20 plus years in, I'm still constantly working on. I talk too much and I know it. Mm-hmm. And I have to really remind myself, like, just shut up. Stop mm-hmm. trying to fill these moments. And often when I'm able to do that, that is really when the most, um, I don't know, when there's a greater connection with the client or when the more important stuff tends to then come to light. And it's it's hard to do that. And I, I think to um, the quote, have you seen the movie Pulp Fiction? Yes. There's, there, so there's a moment where um, Mia Wallace and Vincent Vega are, you know, they're out, they do their twist contest and they eat their burgers and their shakes. And she asks him, um, do you, do, do you listen or do you wait to speak? And he said, I wait to speak, but I'm trying to listen. Mm-hmm. And I just love that moment. And I think if we could all listen and get curious and use silences to do that, that there would be more depth to those interactions that we have with one another. Oh, absolutely. I love that. You're um, pointing us towards that that place of shared silence is really one of the things we were most excited to bring in with this book. We have a chapter or actually a whole part of the book devoted to quiet together because we find that silence is magnified when it's shared and it does offer this connection that you're talking about in part, I suspect because we're in this space of wholeness without all these divisions, words are beautiful. We love them and we use a lot of them as we already confessed, but they're they divide things, they categorize and they make, you know, so do a certain magic to the world and silence offers us the space of, of wholeness, which we so appreciate. In fact, we turn to Japanese principle of ma, M-A, that's how it's transliterated. The kanji character is gate and sun put together and it's got an image of the golden light pouring through the slats of a temple gate. 
it's this principle that feels to me like a silence in action or silence operationalized throughout a culture where in the aesthetics, there's this emphasis on the empty space, the silence, the nothingness, if you will, or the pure potentiality as we like to uh, refer to it. There's this emphasis on that as well as say in Ikebana flower arrangement, the branches and the petals. So it's really, there's a wholeness there. You're taking in the wholeness of that piece of artwork, that beautiful arrangement. And in Japanese scrolls, the empty space is just as important as those brush strokes. And in conversation, you'll hear a different pacing, a different rhythm and more space. When our, our friend in, uh, who's interviewed in the book, a colleague of mine, Faith Fuller, goes to Japan, she has to slow her, her Northeastern self down a little bit <laughs> uh, to actually listen when she asks, how are you? those students will take the time to check in and answer, ask, you know, ask that question to themselves and then answer wholeheartedly. So there's a pacing that she has to kind of slow down. So this ma is one of those principles that we bring in to, you know, where can we bring in more ma into say our, our therapy practice, yeah. our, our work in the world, whatever that looks like, our conversations, our day, where can we invite in more ma? And have more of a whole, a whole sense of a day instead of just the content and the agenda and the meetings and the words. I love that. I love that. And that's one of the things that you talk about. So in the, I think it's part five, the second half of the book is really kind of the part that is really the field guide to finding silence where you really walk readers through several ideas for building more quiet into their lives. And then you even very kindly catalog them at the very end of the book with page numbers and everything. There's right. There's a whole section that's like 33 ways to find silence, (laughs) Um, which I love that because this is a, you know, it's a book I've read that will now sit on my shelf, but when I don't remember, you know, I need a refresher six months from now, how nice that I can just turn to the back and here are 33 examples of things that I can do. So of course, we could never possibly go through 33 examples in a podcast interview. So people will have to buy the book so they can get all that that juicy practice in. But I was hoping you guys would be willing to share, um, you know, maybe two or three each that that you that are either your favorite in your own personal life or that you have gotten feedback from your audiences are the most helpful for them. Like let's help our our listeners so that they can practice finding these moments of silence. Sure. You know, in the way we walk through the 33 ways, like some of them, they start with what we call the healthy successor to the smoke break. It's like back when people used to smoke cigarettes. Thankfully, people aren't, most people aren't smoking as many cigarettes or smoking cigarettes these days. But like people used to have these moments in their day when they could step away from work and just connect to the rays of the sun and breathe. That was a very unhealthy way of doing that, of course. But it's like, what is the healthy successor to the smoke break? So the first set of practices we have are these throughout your day. How do you find these pockets of silence? And then we go into deeper silences that we can find in our own lives, what we call rapturous silence. So the once a year, once every five years where we could connect to the, some of the deepest silence that we've known. 
And then we get into shared practices and workplaces and families, you know, as you were talking about the connection between silence and connection to other people. Silence isn't always about solitude. The power of silence can be magnified when it's shared. And then toward the end, the practices, we imagine a society that honors silence. So we look at public policy and we look at ideas for how to reshape our culture so there's more appreciation of silence. Lee, do you want to go into some individual questions first that I could add some? Sure. Um, Thank you for this question, too, about what's really been resonating. I think since we mentioned Ma in here, the idea of as an individual really thinking about where you can weave in Ma into your day. So we spoke with a man who was Aaron Maniam, who's in um, Singapore and had worked works in Formula One, one of the loudest, or used to work in Formula One, one of the loudest of all worldly events, <laughs> but is also this poet and thoughtful, just beautiful human. We spoke with him how he brings quiet into his day, even when he's planning this huge event. And so he really taught us about transitions, bringing the ma to transition. So even if he's opening a new document, he might just pause and take a breath or transitioning from one room to the other. He may just just take a beat at that doorknob as he opens the door, crosses the threshold, or just the way he even just pauses to drink some water with such mindfulness, right? With just bringing in that ma. So finding those places of transitions, I think, is one of those things. Maybe even to think of our commutes a little differently as maybe a moment of quiet instead of like, you know, racing. So that's one that comes to my mind. Well, and I, I love those examples because I think what, what often happens in a very noisy, busy world is people think, okay, yeah. The, okay, Lee, those are great suggestions, but how am I going to have any time to find this quiet in my life? And these suggestions you're giving are things that you can build into the day that you're already having, like you don't have to go away for a week long silent retreat. You yes. Can take a breath during, <laughs> during a time of transition. Absolutely. This, yeah. this book is not for people who want to run off on retreat for months right. at a time. And we love that when that can happen, but it's really for people like ourselves who are living a full, very vibrant, um, in the case, you know, full of kids. We all, we have kids and Justin has two-year-old twins and a six-year-old daughter. I have a teenager. These are full times, full consulting practices, um, full community involvement, all those things. So how do we weave silence into those moments? And so another one that is like, yes, it doesn't need to be added to your to-do list, those of you listening, is just the little gifts of silence when basically when you get plan- your plans get waylaid. So you're in a long line, your um, you know, podcast streaming just suddenly stops <laughs> or your phone breaks or whatever. How can you embrace that moment as an unstructured moment? quiet instead of trying to cram in more stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think to notice the moment that happens, the discomfort that will likely arise and mm-hmm. that desire to fill, oh, oh, my podcast just turned off. I have to immediately turn something else on. I couldn't possibly drive my car with no noise. And to, right. To notice right. that kind of auto autopilot reaction. And can you sit through that and look at that as an opportunity? To, totally. to get the benefits of silence. Yeah. 
I love that you said that notice because, you know, at one point in the book, we, we really distill this to its essence, like what we're recommending. And it really comes down to notice noise, tune into silence, appreciate silence, you know, rather than just reaching for the podcast to restart it, you know? I mean, yeah. we're obviously fans of podcasts, <laughs> but but like the need to, yeah, the need to, to constantly fill the space. Like, can we also appreciate these moments of silence? You know, can we pay attention to all these forms of noise, auditory, informational, internal that are arising and study them? And then can we perceive these small pockets of peace that live in between? And even if these little pockets of silence are only five seconds, how deeply can we go into those five seconds? Like how much can we connect to the quality of silence rather than the quantity? And then we look in the book at how can we sometimes cultivate spaces of what we call profound silence? Like we sometimes even call rapturous silence. You know, and like we were saying before, like um, Jill, when you first picked up the book, you were saying like, I don't know if I've ever experienced this profound silence. And sometimes it's a matter of consciously cultivating it. So we do go into practices in the book for really profound silence. And again, that doesn't need to be a long silent retreat. We actually don't get into that so much. We do talk about some ways to have a short DIY retreat, silent retreat at home. But, you know, we don't tell people go run off to a monastery for a week or a month. <laughs> you know, we do have a practice that we call take your to-do list for a hike. And that was inspired by someone I mentioned before, the acoustic ecologist Gordon Hempton, who had a rule that whenever his to-do list would get too long, he would take it to the most remote place he could get to, this temperate rainforest in Washington State that was a few hours from his home in Seattle. And he'd get there, and then he would tune into the silence, and then he would take out his to-do list. And in this place of such pristine silence... He told us that he was recently able to cross off five months worth of professional commitments from his list. So he took a day off and was able to cross off five months of work that he thought he needed to do. Because from the vantage point of his home office and his computer, everything in that list looked super important. But from the vantage point of this deep immersion and silence in nature, he could connect more to what really mattered to him. And in that place, he realized he didn't need to be so caught up in the busyness. I love that. Yeah. And that we talk a lot on this podcast about acceptance and commitment therapy, which includes a, a present moment awareness aspect to it, but most importantly is all about connection to values and really living a, a deeply values driven life. And, you know, I think what you're saying is, is making me, th so the, the last place I wanted to talk about, which we already touched on a little bit, but is thinking about the role of this in therapy. And, and what made me think of the question was in reading about Jarvis J, the inmate at San Quentin mm -hmm. that you talk about, which was the other favorite part for me. Oh yeah. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, just such a tra tragic, but, but I don't know, inspiring story at the same time. And, and, you know, he's known to meditate and teach meditation. And, um, and, you know, so I think at the very least therapists want to get quiet so they can hear, right. And silence allows that space, like I said, but like for observation, reflection, curiosity, 
listening. Um, but I'm wondering if, I know you aren't therapists, but if anything comes to mind in terms of like, is there a heal, a like specific way, like a healing way to use silence and psychotherapy that goes beyond just that kind of like observation, reflection, like, is it, would it, could it potentially even be useful to teach clients mm -hmm. about silence and using silence and how they might connect to values through silence or, you know, quiet that internal noise. Do, does, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, we do in many ways, we're doing this in our own work, which is with, um, so for example, we, uh, working with um, scientists who are trying to solve complex issues around pollutants in our environment and our products. And they, um, there's a way in which we can come at these issues. You know, there's a lot of knowledge in the room, generally speaking, about these issues. A lot of studies, a lot of, they could do lots of PowerPoints, they could do a lot of data, but that kind of keeps us in conventional understanding about the problem. And I think something similar can happen if we're talking, we're sort of replaying the story about ourselves to ourselves and now to our therapist, you know, we're just, yeah. in, in a sense, just carving that groove deeper, deeper, deeper still. So we take folks out to quiet spaces and we just sort of change it up a little bit, do different things, or maybe we're talking about the content, but we're also inviting in a lot of open space so that some new novel connection could be made around this issue. Maybe the that what from a spiritual religious perspective, the we small voice can be heard instead of the the dominant voices of of mm -hmm. in our inside. So I'm, we're doing something similar with organizations and trying to create a little bit more space for something new to come through because um, those it's sometimes it's the voices inside us or inside even a group that are marginalized, that are quieter, that really carry the answers. So I'm, yeah, so that's that's what comes to my mind. As you point out, this is not our expertise, but with the value of what it what is offered so many different types of groups and people and ourselves to get a little quiet so we can hear different voices, quiet yeah. voices, even sense things that maybe don't feel verbal at all. Mm -hmm. That's just of the, it's, we just feel like it's an imperative um, right now at this time. Yeah. One of the, one of the questions we explore in the book, you know, is what if you could take a break from one of life's most basic responsibilities, having to think of what to say. You know, how can we rest the mental reflexes that habitually protect our reputation or promote our point of view? You know, and, and one thing I find in, you know, why people seek therapy of various sorts, you know, whether it's, it's formal therapy or, or different healing modalities in our world these days, it's a feeling of overwhelm, not just with the sound and stimulus of the world, but the sound and stimulus and the, the kind of dialogue and entertainment that we're expected to keep up, having to keep up appearances on social media and in our work. And, you know, there's something about the healing encounter in silence that can especially, I think, be really powerful in therapy. You know, there's something about being able to hold space with another person without the expectations of needing to prove our worthiness through saying the right thing, you know, or looking clever 
or looking, you know, like you have some certain virtue, like the, the joy of just being. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's of course, you know, in, in therapy, a person is, is paid compensated, you know, therapist for the expertise that they would bring in different healing modalities. But one thing I find is, is just presence, just holding the space for another person can often be what provides the most value to a person. It's like this question, like, where does healing come from? One of the big propositions we make in this book is that it comes through the silence. Well, I think that is a brilliant place for us to wrap up. And I know I am going to try to bring more silence into my own life, both in my, in the therapy room and in my life as well. Thank you both of you so much for being here and for the great book. Again, it's called Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. If people want to learn more about you, about the book, about what you do, where can they find you? Yeah, they can find us at Astrea Strategies. That's A-S-T-R-E-A strategies.com. That's our shared website consultancy. There's a lot of uh, ways to contact us as well as a lot of different um, interviews and reviews and podcasts and stuff if you want to learn more. And uh, we're on LinkedIn as well for people who who enjoy that. And the book can be found really anywhere you find books. And if you're an auditory person, we would like to highly recommend the, aud- the audible book read by Prentice Oniyemi, who just brought so much quiet and magic to his reading of our book. So, oh, that's lovely. Well, yeah. we will link to all of those in our show notes. And thank you again so much for being here. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, Jill. Hey, Psychologist Off the Clock listeners, I'm going to guess that if you are listening to this episode that you love to geek out about books in psychology. So if you are a fellow book nerd like Yael and I, and all of the people around you are tired of you talking about books, then you can join us once a month to really take a deep dive into the the books that we're going to be reading together. So if you want to join us, all you have to do is send an email with the subject heading RSVP to offtheclockpsych at gmail.com and we'll send you information for upcoming meetings of the book club. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com. 